You're listening to the Renovation Church Sermon Podcast. For more information on services and events at our Simpsonville and Greenville locations, visit us online at therenovation.church. Today's message is presented by our Simpsonville teaching pastor, Jason Thompson. Wrapping up today, our series on Proverbs, you don't have to learn the hard way. So if you'll go ahead and start with me, we're going to start with a passage in Proverbs 6, and that'll be starting with verse 16, so Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. Uh, before I get started, though, like if you were here last week, you've heard this already, but I feel the need to just kind of put a disclaimer out there, a little... I don't know, warning label, okay? I I told you last week that this one was gonna be PG-13. Nothing that I say is going to be um, too crazy, but uh, we're reading a passage of scripture that has some intense violence and some adult content type of stuff, so if you have young kids and and you're worried about that and you don't want them to be in here, I will not be offended if you walk out with them um, and if you think, hey, they're mature enough or they're not paying attention anyway. Um, so, that, you know, go run with it right there. But um, so I want to start in this passage in, in Proverbs 6, though, because it's going to set the tone. And this is, I have this on a sticky note on my mirror. I'm, I'm currently learning it. And it's, it just talks about things that God hates. And I think it would be wise for us to know what God hates so we can avoid those things. So let's look at it in verse 16 here. It says this. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. And that's, that might seem weird. He's like, did he just remember one at the last second there? No, this is like a literary device. This is like an oratory device that he's using here to kind of get your attention. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. So these are things that are just the opposite of God's character. He is a humble God, and how an omnipotent God can be humble, it's mind-blowing, but that's who he is. That's how he revealed himself to be through Jesus. He's humble. And if anybody had no, had no reason to be humble, it would be God, right? But no, but yet in all that power, he's humble. He wants us to be humble. And he's the God of truth. So he doesn't want someone with a lying tongue. He, he despises that. And hands that shed innocent blood, he is the defender of the weak. He is the defender of the innocent. He takes care of them. And a heart that devises wicked schemes, just plotting evil, just all day long. We can see that in today's world. Feet that are quick to rush into evil, just running towards it. Not even trying to prevent it. A false witness who just pours out lies saying that someone did something they didn't do. And a person who stirs up conflict in the community. And we're gonna read a story today that has most of these elements, just, just terrible, terrible things. And the staff has often um, accused me of just picking out the least heard of, most controversial stories from the Old Testament, all right? <laughs> and there may be some truth to that, all right? But there's a, there's a method to my madness. Scripture is very clear that, that all of it is God-breathed. 
All of it is useful for teaching. And it's always bothered me that there's certain passages that are never talked about. And so, yeah, maybe I do cherry pick them to a certain degree, but I really feel like God puts them on my heart and says, you know, teach this. And so we're gonna be looking at, at uh, three chapters, actually. I'll be skimming through some of it, but we're in Judges 19. Judges 19, and this is like one of the most horrific stories in the Bible, just up front, all right? But there's a reason why it's in the Bible. It's not like it's just a blip in scripture either. This story takes place over three chapters. It goes into great detail to talk about it. And to me, it perfectly sums up the book of Judges. It is what the book of Judges is all about. And so I wanna look at this one today and try to figure out why God is sharing this word of warning to us and what we can get, gather from it. So starting with uh, verse one in chapter 19, let's read together. In those days, Israel had no king. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem and Judah, but she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. So you see some, some names and characters and stuff going on here already. First, it's important, there is no king at this point, all right? This is after Moses led the people out of Egypt, after Joshua helped conquer the promised land. So they're established in the promised land, but they have no king. They're all just kind of left to their own devices and they rule. And remember last week we talked about authority and how that's a gift from God and how God puts those in our life. Well, the people that lived during the, in the promised land at this time just didn't pay any attention to authority. They didn't have a lot of rules and regulations. They just kind of did what was right in their own eyes. And now we have a Levite who is, is someone, is, is, a, is a tribe that's dedicated to the Lord, right? That's supposed to do the Lord's work. This is kind of like your church workers kind of people. And you know, they serve in the temple. And so this Levite um, who, who's living in the hill country of Ephraim uh, had a concubine. That was from Bethlehem. You know, that's where Jesus was born. So it's interesting that she was from that area. And a concubine is basically a, a title for a second-class wife. So it is, it is a wife. It's someone that has um, wife responsibilities, but she doesn't get the status of the primary wife, and she doesn't have any inheritance. Her children are considered illegitimate. And so it is a second-class wife, but it is a wife. And she was, you know, by all the laws, that she was supposed to be faithful to her husband, but she didn't like her plight as a second-class citizen living like this. And this was never how God intended it. This is not how marriage is supposed to be. There's not supposed to be polygamy, all right? But this is something that God gave as a concession to their hard hearts. He's like, I know you're gonna do it. And then he, so he regulated it, but this is not his intention. It's supposed to be one man, one woman for life joined together. And when you put these other elements in there, things go awry. And you'll see that in this story. But she was unfaithful to him. She left him when he went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, Judah. After she had been there four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her parents' home, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the woman's father, prevailed on him to stay. So he remained with them three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. On the fourth day, they got up early and he prepared to leave. But the woman's father said to his son-in-law, refresh yourself with something to eat, then you can go. So the two of them sat down to eat and drink together. 
Afterward, the woman's father said, please stay the night and enjoy yourself. And when the man got up to go, his father-in-law persuaded him. So he stayed there that night. On the morning of the fifth day, when he rose to go, the woman's father said, refresh yourself, wait till afternoon. So the two of them ate together. Then when the man with his concubine and his servant got up to leave, his father-in-law, the woman's father, said, now look, it's almost evening. Spend the night here. The day is nearly over. Stay and enjoy yourself. Early tomorrow morning, you can get up and be on your way home. But unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went toward Jabus, that is Jerusalem, with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. When they were near Jabus and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, come, let's stop at this city, the Jebusites, and spend the night. His master replied, no, no, we won't go into any city whose people are not Israelites. We'll go on to Gibeah. He added, come, let's try to reach Gibeah or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. So they went on, and the sun set as they neared Gibeah and Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them in for the night. That evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim, who was living in Gibeah, the inhabitants of the place where the Benjamites came in from his work in the fields. When he looked and saw the travelers in the city square, the old man asked, where are you going? Where did you come from? He answered, we are on our way from Bethlehem and Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim where I live. I have been to Bethlehem and Judah and now I'm going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me in for the night. We have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for our, ourselves, your servants. Me, the woman, and the young man with us, we don't need anything. You are welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need. Only don't spend the night in the square. So he took him into his house and fed his donkeys. After they had washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house, pounding on the door. They shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came into your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, no, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this outrageous thing. Look, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them and they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn, they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, fell down at the door and lay there until daylight. Every time I read this story, I just want to throat punch these two guys. I just like, what's that up there? Bam! Like, what, what is going on? Like, how? Like, how can you do this? Like, how can they even cross your mind to send your women out there, your daughter and your wife? It shows you just how sideways this society was, that women were considered property. And women were never to be considered property. They are image bearers of a holy God. 
They are made in his image too. They are supposed to have equal status in, in, in God's eyes. And, and as, a, as a marriage, you come together and become one. Like the needs of your spouse are supposed to be ahead of your own. And for you to act this way, I mean, we call them men, but these guys are not men. A man provides for his family. A man lays down his life like Christ for his spouse. That is what a man is called to do. These are gutless, spineless cowards. And their viewpoint, they, they looked at women as property, something that God never, never told them to do. And as a result, it was unthinkable for this man that was hosting this other man to allow him to be harmed because he was a guest. And at this, this day and age, hospitality was a big deal. They should have been welcome in. I mean, the scripture has a lot to say about welcoming foreigners and strangers into your home. Like you owe them food and protection and care, according to scripture. And the customs of the day is that you were supposed to be extremely hospitable. And a person in your, in your home, you were responsible for. And so he sees this man out in the square, and already you have red flags here that this man was allowed to be in the square for so long and that no one took him in. It's showing that these people are, are not godly people and they're not doing what the Lord has commanded. And he's, he's looking around, he's like, wow, this is very inhospitable, no one's taking me in. Finally, someone that is from his, his own neck of the woods, Ephraim, um, comes and is like, what, what are you doing here? And again, another red flag, he's like, whatever you do, don't stay in the square. I mean, it's eerily similar to the Sodom and Gomorrah story. Same thing. So, sojourners coming in the square and you know, Lot comes home and he's like, whoa, 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 don't stay here. You don't know what's gonna happen to you. Why would you live in a place where you think that kind of stuff can happen? How are you raising kids in that? Unless you have a divine decree from the Lord and but the, the town you live in is so dangerous that, that people that come are just gonna be raped? That's outrageous. And here you have them and, and they want the man. They're not even asking for the concubine, not even asking the daughter. So they're coming after the guy, and the guy's like, oh no, take my concubine. Kicks her out the door. It's despicable. It, it bothers me every time. And it just gets worse. Verse 27. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house, with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. There was no answer because she died. And I look at his response here, and again, it just fills me with indignant rage. I mean, you went to sleep? Your wife is out there and you just, you went to sleep and then you're surprised the next morning that she's at your threshold and then you just like get up? Like how can a society go so far down a direction where we can treat our loved ones like this and think that it's okay? Again, we are called to serve. We are called to lift up. We are called to protect. 
It's inexcusable. But then he puts her on the donkey and goes out home. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine, limb by limb, into 12 parts, and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites come, came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something. So speak up. One thing that you have to remember when you're reading the Old Testament, especially the histories, all right, is this, this is just proper interpretation. This is how you interpret the Bible. There's, you have to approach different passages of Scripture in different ways, depending on the genre. And in a historical text, it is descriptive, not prescriptive, which means it is describing what happened. It is not what should have happened. It is not telling you how to handle something unless the Lord is actually speaking. And the Lord is gonna speak just in little snippets in the, in the next couple chapters, but for the most part, he is silent. And there's a reason why he's silent, because he has been rejected by society. He has been pushed out. These are people doing what's right in their own eyes and making decisions on their own way. So as we read this chapter and, and, and the other chapters that are in historical context, we need to keep in mind that the Lord is saying this is what happened. It's not telling us what should have happened. It's not telling us what we should do about it. So you have to be very careful as you're doing your interpretation and projecting like, like what to take from this. You gotta be careful. But I think there are some things that we can certainly come from this. But the whole purpose, I believe, of the book of Judges is to give us a warning a warning of what a society will look like when it rejects God. And it was this, this cycle over and over again that they would go and start serving other gods, they would start doing all kinds of sexual perversion, they would go and just do whatever they wanted, and God said, okay, you don't want me, I will let, I'll leave you to your own devices and I'll allow you to push me away. And what inevitably happened every single time is it descended into chaos and madness. They, the people got taken over by another group of people and they were then oppressed and things got so bad that they finally cried out and said, we repent. And they called out to God and God was faithful and just and merciful that he would sweep in and he would give them a leader. He would give them an authority figure to look to, a human authority figure because they would not look to God who was supposed to be their king and he would give them a leader to raise up and supernaturally defeat the enemy, and during his lifetime, there would be a period of peace, because they would look to this person for wisdom and judgment. That's why they were called a judge. And then once that judge died, no more leadership, no more authority, no more looking to God, going back to their idols, going back to their sins, and eventually repeating the cycle. And so, because this town had gotten so depraved. And because this Levite did this thing where he, he, he chops up his wife and, and, and sends her to different places, he wanted, for, for shock value, that people do, the people wake up. And so let's see the response here. Chapter 20. Then all Israel from Dan to Beersheba and from the land of Gilead came together as one and assembled before the Lord in Mizpah. The leaders of all the people, the tribes of Israel, took their places in the assembly of God's people. 400,000 men armed with swords. The Benjamites heard that the Israelites had gone up to Mizpah. 
Then the Israelites said, tell us how this awful thing happened. So the Levite, the husband of the murdered woman said, I and my concubine came to Gibeah and Benjamin to spend the night. During the night, the men of Gibeah came after me and surrounded the house intending to kill me. They raped my concubine and she died. I took my concubine, cut her into pieces, and sent one piece to each region of Israel's inheritance because they committed this lewd and outrageous act in Israel. Now all, all you Israelites, speak up and tell me what you have decided to do. All the men rose up together as one, saying, none of us will go home. Not, no, not one of us will return to his house. But now this is what we'll do to Gibeah. We'll go up against it in the order decided by casting lots. We'll take 10 men out of every 100 from all the tribes of Israel and 100 from 1,000 and 1,000 from 10,000 to get provisions for the army. Then when the army arrives at Gibeah and Benjamin, it can give them what they deserve for this outrageous act done in Israel. So all the Israelites go together and united as one against the city. For the sake of time, I'm gonna just summarize some of this, what's going on, but they're outraged. They see this horrific thing and they're responding. And I believe this is a godly response. You see a nightmare, you see evil, you see injustice, you see harming of the innocent. There should be a natural reaction to, we need to put a stop to this. And so they gather together all of Israel and they take it very seriously. And so seriously, in fact, that they say, you know, um, anyone that does not come out and represent their clan, their people, they're gonna be wiped out too. Like, this is how serious we're taking it. All of us have to assemble for this, and we're gonna go to this town of Gibeah, we're gonna take care of these men, and if the town fights back, we're gonna wipe out the whole town. Unfortunately, the tribe of Benjamin goes, whoa, 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 you're not gonna do anything to our town. We'll handle our own business. And so they assemble their warriors, and they have uh, about 26,000 warriors. They have 700 men that are just intense fighters that can apparently really good with slings and can like knock a fly off, you know, a camel's hair. You know, it's like they're like really intense fighters. They say they're just like really accurate. And so they're coming together and they're and they're coming to fight. And I'm I'm interested in this because the people of Israel then go to God. And they cast lots and they're like, who should go first? And they, they, the people of God go to the Lord and say, who should lead us? And the Lord says, you know, take Judah. Judah should go out first and go on your way. And so they have this battle with Benjamin. You know, 100,000 100, of Israelites against, you know, 26,000 Benjamites. And the Benjamites win. The first battle, the Benjamites wipe out 22,000 Israelites. And then the people go to the Lord and they're weeping and they're fasting. Like, what went wrong, Lord? What's gonna happen? Do you want us to still do this? Do you want us to go forward with this? And it says, yeah, go, go fight them. They go back out there, 18,000 more people die from the side of Israel. The Benjamites are just kicking butt and taking names. Like, they're just wiping them out. And again, they go back to the Lord, you know, prayer and fasting and weeping and gnashing of teeth and like, Lord, I don't, we don't understand, like, should we stop? Should we go out there? And then finally, the Lord says, I will put them into your hands. This will be the last time. And so this time they go in with a little bit better plan too. And they go in and they're like, okay, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna go in there 
we're gonna act like we're losing again and we're gonna go into retreat mode. And we're gonna pull the Benjamites away from this city of Gibeah and then we're gonna do a sneak attack in that town, destroy it, and then come and kind of like sandwich them together. And which is exactly what happens. And so they go and sure enough, Benjamin's winning again. They, they kill a few people. They're running away in retreat. And Benjamin's like, ah, we got them. And it comes chasing after them. And then as they do so, Sure enough, sneak attack, wipe out the city of Gibeah. They come afterwards, and now it's sandwiched, and, and they're freaking out because they realize they've been had, and, and so they start losing the battle badly. So badly that only 600 warriors survive out of the 26,000 Benjamites. And they get chased up into the hillside before the Israelites finally start pursuing them, but then the Israelites go to all the land of Benjamin and start raising all the towns, just destroying everything. It's just horrific. And as, as a believer that is studying the Bible, it's like, wait, what did the Lord want here? What did he not want? Like, what is going on here? And it is very hard to discern. And one of the things that bothers me the most is that these people were trying to do the right thing and then there's a lot of people that die. But that is reality. If you look at the reality of, of our history, recent history, if you let things go so sideways and society deteriorate so much that you have to raise up an army to fight against evil, there are gonna be casualties of war. You can't reject the Lord for 50, 75, 100 years and expect that society not be so corrupt and broken that there isn't devastation and consequences to that. I mean, maybe one of you know, obvious recent example is World War II, where Hitler was coming to power, and people were looking on and going, well, he's not that bad. And they're like, well, we don't, we just, we're still recovering from World War I. We don't really want to engage with this. Let peace, let's just peace, compromise, let him do his thing until it got so bad that the only fix for that was to go to war where just America alone lost 400,000 soldiers. And I think that was a just war to prevent evil, but evil should have been nipped in the bud way before that. And the constant refrain, and, and it's, the, it's the same refrain, uh, let, let's, read it, let's read 21, let's finish the story and then we'll, we'll start talking, we'll go into detail about it. But look at verse, uh, chapter 21 now. The men of Israel had taken an oath at Mizpah, not one of us will give his daughter in marriage to a Benjamite. The people went to Bethel where they sat before God until evening, raising their voices and weeping bitterly. Lord, God of Israel, they cried, why has this happened to Israel? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? And that is, that is just so like human nature, right? Like you descend into sin, you get the consequences of your sin, and it's like, why, God? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to our nation? Why is all this evil going on in the world? Why? Because you've rejected him. You've pushed him out of every section of a society. Like you aren't living the right way. You aren't immersing the word. You aren't doing these things. You're not sharing the gospel. Like, what do you mean why? Why? Because you've rejected me. 
And in his goodness, in his mercy, in his love, he's not going to allow you to go sin, 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 and not have any consequences. If you have a child that you protect from consequences, every time they sin, you will raise a monster. And if God allowed a society to continue down their sin, he would be raising a nation of monsters and they would go to an eternal destination separate from him if they did not see the consequences of their sin. And sometimes there are dire consequences. And only God has the big pictures to know what is best for society as a whole. And there are times where there is a heavy cost to sin. And I know that our God's heart breaks at the loss of the innocent. You don't think he's weeping, you don't think he cares. Everything in scripture tells us where his heart is and it's with children and it's with the innocent. It's with those that can't defend themselves. But he has to allow things to happen so people to wake up. And so it's a horrible story. For take a time, I'm just gonna summarize it again. But essentially, like this, this tribe is about to be wiped out. And so their fix for it is that they, there's one city that didn't come and, and fight with the Israelites. And they said, we said we'd wipe you out if you didn't do that. And so they go and wipe out that city except for the virgins, except for the, all the people that have not already married. And so they take those women and give them to the Benjamites. And they're a little bit short. So they're like, what do we do now? Like, oh, hey, there's this big festival coming up. We're just gonna turn a blind eye and we'll allow you to go take these women, the Benjamites, to come out of the woods, steal some of these women and take them back to the woods and just that's, that'll make up for the other 200. You're like, what? I, I really don't think that was God's plan, all right? And so they, they do this whole thing. And so again, this tribe is saved, but like at the cost, it was just so heavy. And you're like, well, Jason, why in the world are you sharing this horrible story with us? Like, what is your point, all right? Here is my point. Here, this is it, the whole reason for it is down to this one question. And it's this, what is it gonna take? What is it gonna take for us to wake up and repent? We look at how horrible this story is by look around our society and I can find some things that would compete. Every year in America, there are over 800,000 abortions. That is an unthinkable number. Twice as many as died from America in World War I. Almost 70 million now since in the last 50 years. Last year, 109,000 overdose deaths, most from fentanyl, streaming into the country. There are now annually over 20,000 sex change surgeries in America alone with the fastest growing population of those being minors. There are between 15,000 to 50,000 women and children being taken into the sex trafficking industry every year in America. We don't even know exactly how many, that there's a diversity between 15,000 and 50 because it's way more than we think. And I know there was a movie that came out recently that's got people thinking about it and I haven't seen it. I don't need to see it because 
I've been, I've been researching this. I've been keeping my eyes open. It is all over and it's prevalent and it's in South Carolina. And one of the things that broke my heart is reading the statistic that about 60% of the kids that are trafficked, which they estimate could be as high as 300,000 in America, about 60% of them come from the foster agency. Kids in broken homes, so broken that they're removed from their homes and they're put in situations that get them sexually trafficked. What is it gonna take for us to see this and say, we need to repent? What is it gonna take for us to be weeping and crying out to God saying, please forgive us? I look at the mighty men of like Daniel and David and, and, and all these prophets who they weren't sinning at that time, but they, their people were sinning and they cry out to God, please forgive us. Forgive us as a nation. Do a great work in this nation. Do a great work in our community. Show me what I can do to absolve this. What, what can I do in my part? What is it gonna take for us to act? And there's a reason why I taught the, the last week's message first. We don't go and bomb abortion clinics. We don't shout on people's face and, and initiate violence. That is not how we fight our battles. We fight our battles on our knees. We come together as a community and pray. We also speak truth. Jesus came to bring the truth. We've gotta speak truth in love. Our motivation must always be love, but we also can't just comfortably go about our lives until it's so bad we're like, oh wait, there's a Holocaust around us. And I think many of us would say, you know, if I lived back in slavery, I would have been one of those that spoke out. I would have never owned slaves and I would have been an abolitionist and spoke out. Or we say, if I was living in Nazi Germany, I would have seen how messed up everything was. And I would not have gone along with that party. And I would have, I've been one of the people hiding the Jewish people. That's easy to say. But there's atrocities going on all around us. Are you doing anything? most of those people were living in their comfortable homes and were not paying attention with their head down. I'm sure if they would have visited Auschwitz, they might have been motivated to do something. But is it gonna take a body part arriving in our mailbox for us to wake up and see that there is as messed up stuff out there? And so what I'm saying is I wanna be a church that prays heavily for this nation and for our communities and for the people that are being harmed, the innocents that are being harmed. And I wanna be a people that just don't show up to church but that we are vocal about our faith and we share the gospel. There are people that are gonna experience a much worse, much worse eternal destination than this if we don't speak up, if we don't share the gospel. They need to hear it from our mouths. We cannot be comfortable Christians. We have got a limited, a limited amount of time to share the gospel with those that we love around us and the communities that need to hear it. And you're like, well, what do we do about all the atrocities out there? Well, like I said, first pray. Pray individually and then come together in your small groups here at church and pick something to pray about as a group something that, you, that God puts on your heart that you wanna be passionate about. 
And then the next step is, is get involved with one of these amazing organizations that are trying to do something about it. I think of Switch, who's trying to stop sexual trafficking in this area. I think about the parents who need to get into the school boards and, 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 and get into the school systems and make sure we're not fostering gender confusion and celebrating things that are going to break them. We need to bring the love of Christ to the world as much as we can. And we're like, well, that's gonna rock the boat. We're probably gonna be experience persecution. Well, good, that's how the church grows. But I want all of us to one day, at the end of our life, hear from our Lord and Savior, well done, my good and faithful servant. But if we take all the talents and abilities that he has gifted us and we sit on them and only use them for our own benefits, then we're not gonna hear that. And so let's be motivated to do something about the sin that we see around us, starting with the sin in our own lives first. It's gotta start there. We, we get rid of everything that is, that is holding us back from Christ. And then as we are cleansed from the inside out, then we speak to everyone that will listen about our love for Christ and how there is peace and joy found only in him. And then we go out and find all the women and children, the people that are in need and suffering, and we bring them help. That's the kind of Christians, that's the kind of disciples we need to be. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you so much for including passages of scripture that shake us up, that rebuke us, that challenge us. Help us not look at these things and think that's for somebody else. But this is for us. We live in a society that has rejected you that has pushed you away further and further to the fringes of our society. And I pray a prayer of repentance. I pray and ask for revival in this church to start with, in the greater Big C Church and the nation and the world at large. Bring revival to us. May the Holy Spirit shake us up and motivate us to acts of goodwill and help. Help us not to be complacent, but help us be motivated, fully formed followers of Christ that are disciples for you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Renovation Church Sermon Podcast. Find out more about following Jesus and building his kingdom at the Renovation. Church.